All right. Um, Father, as we continue to look at how Jesus is a, is a greater priest, we pray that you would help us, give us minds to understand the scriptures, help us to see Christ as supreme, and we pray that we would have a greater appreciation about his sacrifice uh, through this study. For we ask and pray in, in his name. Amen. All right. So um, we started to look at Jesus being a greater priest yesterday. And what was the kind of tricky question that the author of Hebrews had to be able to answer. Yeah, Jesus isn't a Levite. Which tribe is he from? Judah. Judah. And people from Judah are not usually Levites. Or they're, well, they're never Levites. They're, they're not priests. But Jesus is from Judah, so how can he be a priest if he's not from Levi? And what was the, what was the answer, basically? Yeah, he's a different type of priest. He's one after the order of Melchizedek. And to be a priest after Melchizedek, if we are trying to look at the whole Bible and get a, an understanding of what that means, to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek means that you are what? what? Yeah, you're a priest king. You're king in Jerusalem, and that gives you some sort of a priestly status. And um, I tried to make the argument, who's the first priest king in the Bible? Where? Eden. And I'm going to make an argument a little bit later on that um, uh, in, into this course that Eden and Jerusalem are the same place, which is why if you're king of Jerusalem, you are a priest king. Yes? Um, are there any other kings of like, Jerusalem that don't act as priests? Because I know like, we know that as soon as David takes it, David and then Solomon. But then like, there were a whole bunch of his descendants who were like, evil and in front of us that they didn't walk with the Lord, so we shouldn't expect them to be I think that there were some that did um, bring to themselves priestly duties. Um, you think about the uh, King Hezekiah, mm-hmm. and the Rabshakeh makes this horrible statement about God, you know, God can't rescue you from the king of Assyria. And Hezekiah takes that scroll and goes into God's presence in the temple, which is usually something only who can do priest and he puts it down before God and, and prays. Um, so I think that Hezekiah does. I think that Josiah does with the, and, and Joash too, um, with the whole like renovation of the temple thing. Like these are, um, these are duties that a king ought to be doing. But throughout the story, I think that there are little details where both of them are doing kind of priest ish things. Um, and then um, the one story that, that kind of trips people up with this is there is a king named Uzziah who tries to go into the temple and offer an incense sacrifice, and God immediately strikes him with leprosy. But I think that the point of that is, um, is there a difference between being a Levitical priest and a Melchizedekian priest? Yes. Yes. And just because you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek, does that mean that you can usurp the duties of the Levites? No, the Levites are still important, and there's still things that they're supposed to do. You can kind of think of it like a Venn diagram, right? There's a big overlap between what these two types of priests can do, but, but they're not, mutual, they're not um, identical functions, right? And I think what Uzziah is doing, the, the reason that he's punished, is he's really usurping the role of the Levitical priest at that point in time. They're the ones supposed to make incense offerings, and he goes in and tries to do their duty. They even say, this is our job, and he goes, no. And he's struck with leprosy. But, um, you know, he's the only one after David that something like that happens to, everyone else 
after David that does priest-ish type things. Um, you know, being in the presence of the Ark of the Lord, dressing like a priest sometimes, being the one that does the prayer and dedication of the temple, which really, who would you expect to do the prayer and dedication of the temple? The high priest. The high priest, right? Uh, but the king is the one who's doing that. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that if you are looking for it as you read through the book of First and Second Kings, I think if you know to look for it, you see that there are other, other kings that do that as well. So, does that help? Okay. So, um, the author of Hebrews makes the argument that Melchizedek's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. And to argue that point, the author of Hebrews looks at the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. Um, what does Melchizedek give Abraham? Blessing. Blessing. What does Abraham give Melchizedek? A tithe. A tithe. And Abraham, who's greater, Abraham or Levi? Abraham. Yet Abraham pays a tithe, a tax, to Melchizedek, which means that who's greater, Abraham or Melchizedek? Melchizedek. So um, if Abraham is greater than Levi, but Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Um, But there's other ways that the author of Hebrews is going to go about making this sort of an argument. Uh, Somebody open to chapter 7 of Hebrews. Uh, Somebody read verses 23 through 25. Okay, why, according to that text, why is Jesus greater than the Levitical priest? Yeah, he, well, uh, say that differently. He can keep on being priest forever. He can keep on being priest forever. He does die, right? But he doesn't stay dead. He's resurrected, and now he has an, um, a little bit earlier in chapter 7, um, verse 16, it says that he now has the power of an indestructible life. So he he did die, but he's not going to die again. So Jesus can be an eternal, ever-living priest. Now, priests have two main jobs. They make sacrifices and they make, what was the word in that text, Sophia? Intercession. Intercession. What does intercession mean? Yeah, intercession um, uh, is usually tied to prayer, and it's prayer for another party. So it's kind of it's kind of a mediating, kind of going in between type thing, right? Um, so Jesus always lives, and he can always be praying for us. So he's an eternal priest; uh, he can always pray for us. Um, I want you to notice in verse 25 that Sophia just read the very interesting language. Um, He always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. 
he could have said, Jesus always lives, and that means that since he always lives, he can always be praying for them. But, but notice that it ties him living forever with the purpose. What is the purpose of him living forever? To make intercession. What is the thing, uh, so to speak, that gets Jesus up out of bed in the morning? To make intercession for his people, right? It's the most important thing to him. Uh, somebody read verses 26 through 28. All right, so according to that text, why is Jesus better than the Levitical priest? He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself. Yeah, he's perfect. No sacrifice for himself. Other high priests, they sinned, and before they could even do anything for you, they had to look to God's mercy to cleanse their own sin. And... The text is saying that Jesus is better because he doesn't have to do that. He's perfect forever. Um, somebody read chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent of the Lord that set up, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old one. Wait, than the old, as the covenant he meditates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Yeah, you remember whenever Moses built the tabernacle, God showed him a vision of something in heaven and then said, make the tabernacle based on that. So... The tabernacle that Moses made, was it the real one? Not really. No, the text calls it a shadow shadow and a copy. The real tabernacle is where? Hmm? Where's the real tabernacle at? In heaven. So the tabernacle that Moses and the priest ministered in was a shadow and a copy of a better heavenly tabernacle. You remember we talked about how there's a Jerusalem below, but there's also a Jerusalem above. Well, there's a tabernacle or a temple that's below, and then there's one that's above that's greater. And so one of the reasons that Jesus is better than the priest is that he is in, not earth, but heaven. Which means that he ministers 
in the real tabernacle. Not the copy, not the shadow. He ministers in the real one. Um, Throughout scripture, God's presence on earth dwells in what place? Over and over again. Yeah, the ark, which is in the tabernacle and temple, right? But throughout scripture, you get this idea that to be in the presence of God is really to be where? In heaven with him. There's a sense in which the tabernacle and temple are kind of heaven on earth because God's presence is there. But there's also this understanding that to be really with God in the fullest sense is to leave earth and be in heaven, right? And so there is this idea that the author of Hebrews is playing with that um, Jesus isn't just in the tabernacle. He's not just in the temple, but he's in the place where God really is. He's in the place where God is more fully so he can be a better priest because he's even closer to God and he's in the bigger, better version of the tabernacle. Um, Let's see. Let's read, someone read chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. So why is Jesus better according to that text? God is, God is more valuable than goats, so the blood of the God-man is more valuable than the, the offerings of bulls and goats. So he has a more, we could say, a more valuable sacrifice. Mr. Gravit. Yes? Can you say blood of bulls and goats five times fast to make me feel better? No, I want you to feel terrible about yourself. So God-man greater than bulls slash goats. And really better than goats. Man, I hate those little things. All right, um, chapter 9, verses 15 through 22, somebody? 9, 15 through 22. Since a death has occurred 
transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who, is, who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Yeah, this one's a little bit more tricky, but I'll, I'll walk you through it real quick. Um, the idea here is that um, Jesus is better than the priest because he offers a better covenant. Covenant is a word that talks about God's promises in a legal sense, right? We've used the analogy before. If I told you, hey, if you make a 100 on the, on the test, I'll give you $100. And then I didn't do that. There's really no legal ramifications that could come on me. But if I said, hey, I'll give you 100 bucks if you make 100 on the test, and then we went and got it notarized, right? And then you made a 100 and I didn't pay you. At that point, I could be in legal trouble, right? We, um, it's promises plus, um, you know, it, this is becoming a legal uh, transaction, right? That's kind of how you should understand a covenant. And so what this passage is driving at is you all know in scripture that there is the old covenant and the old covenant was given when? Sinai. Sinai, this is the law, all right? And the law's message is do this and you will live. live. Don't do it and you will die, die right? Well, uh, how did Israel do with the old covenant? Yeah, not, not, not very well. The old covenant, though, um, did point past itself. You know, you had the sacrifices. If you sinned, you could do the sacrifices. And there was a promise of grace that was present in the Old Covenant, but this was, this was a promise that wasn't fully understood or comprehended. The Old Covenant pointed past itself to something greater. And, yeah. and um, the prophets, after the exile or during the exile, start talking about how one day God will make a new covenant. And this new covenant will not be an if-then covenant. It won't be if you do these things, then you will live. Instead, it will be an unconditional covenant. It will be a covenant where God says, I'm going to do these things for you. And that's about the entire message. If you're part of this covenant community, God is promising. He's binding himself to do certain things for you, to give you forgiveness of sins, to transform you into a holy person, to accomplish your salvation. It's not one that's based on works. It's one that's based on God's grace and faith. And so what the um, author of Hebrews is driving at here is that the, the priests were associated with which of these covenants? The old, one. the old one. And whenever the old covenant got started, all right, there were sacrifices that were slain. And everything associated with the old covenant was sprinkled in blood. The priests who were becoming ministers of God were sprinkled in blood. The tabernacle was sprinkled in blood. The book of the law was sprinkled in blood. Everything associated with the covenant 
uh, was covered in blood. And the author of Hebrews is now stepping in and saying, that's happened again. Jesus has died on the cross. And he said the night that he was betrayed, he took wine and poured it out and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink it. He didn't literally sprinkle us with his blood, but in a spiritual sense, he did to give us cleansing and forgiveness of sins. And because there is new blood that has been shed, there is a new covenant that has been started. And this new covenant is better than the old covenant because its message is not if you do this, then you'll live. This, the, the new covenant's message is believe in Christ and God will freely give you salvation as a gift. Right. So Jesus offers a better covenant. He offers better promises than the Old Testament priest could. All right. Somebody read chapter nine, verses 23 through 28. Yeah, what is, uh, what's the message here? Why is Jesus better than the priest in this one? He only had to die once. Yeah. How many things had to die under the old covenant? Every single day there were sacrifices that were offered. But Jesus' sacrifice was so great. Um, It was a one-time sufficient sacrifice it was so valuable like we said a second ago it's a one time sufficient sacrifice let's see here alright I'll, I'll read a little bit in chapter 10 chapter 10 says for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why can't Old Testament sacrifices not do? They can't take away sins. Instead, what they can do is serve as a reminder that you are a sinner over and over again and that you need blood to be shed so that you can have life. Something has to substitute uh, in your place. Consequently, in verse 5, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. That's a quote from the Psalms. And the book of Hebrews is saying this is really the words of Christ, speaking prophetically through the Psalms. And what does he say about sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, all of these things in that text? God didn't desire them. They weren't saving anybody. So instead, Jesus takes to himself a what? A body. And he comes to do God's will in verse 7. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So once again, a one-time sufficient sacrifice. It doesn't need to be repeated like the Old Testament sacrifices. Verse 11, I I think this is a very interesting detail. And every priest stands daily at his service. What posture does the priest have to take? They have to stand. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down. One of the reasons he's a better priest than the Levitical priest is that Jesus is sitting. Why do the priests always have to stand up? Because there's always more what to do. More work to do. The priests stand up because there's always more work to do. But Jesus does his work. He offers one sacrifice. He says from the cross, it is finished. And then he sits down because his priestly service in that respect is over. Does he have another sacrifice to offer? No. And that's why he's sitting But as he's sitting there, he continues doing another priestly service. What priestly service does he keep doing? We talked about how there's two things priests do. Sacrifices and? (coughs) As he's sitting at God's right hand, what what is he still doing? Yeah, praying, making intercession for us. So, these are... You could, you could list these differently. There's ways that you could combine them or that you could expand them. But these are arguments that the author of Hebrews is kind of building one on top of another in order to make the case that Jesus is a better priest who offers a better sacrifice and therefore don't leave what is better for that which is less good, right? Um, don't leave that which is sufficient for salvation to that which is empty. Don't leave Melchizedek for Levi, Stay the course. Stay committed to Christ. Earlier in um, Hebrews, back in chapter 4, as he's starting to talk about Jesus as our priest, he says in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The great thing about a high priest 
is hopefully they were a person who was more advanced in the faith than you were. Hopefully they were a person who was holier than you were, who was more mature than you were. But they could relate to you. High priest was a human, was a man. And we learned from Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus also is fully what? Man. Fully human, fully man. And in this text we learn Jesus, he's a perfect man, but the posture that he takes as our priest is, is a very interesting one. He doesn't sit up there in heaven with his arms crossed saying, well, I lived the same thing. I, I lived through the same stuff they lived through, but I did it perfectly. And, and when are they going to learn and get their act together? It doesn't say that he puts himself above us in that way. But instead, it says in the text that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. What does it mean to sympathize? To understand where someone's coming from. Yeah, you can understand what someone, where someone is coming from. You can feel what they feel. You can mourn with those who mourn. And our high priest, even though he's perfect, he went through life as we did. He was tempted in every way that we were. He did it sinlessly. But he knows the struggle, and he's able to sympathize with us. We don't have a high priest who stands aloft of us, but one who comes down to us, one who sympathizes. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It says you can go to him. This, we have this great priest who offered a great sacrifice and that means that God is accessible to us. We can go to him. This is the heart that Jesus displays towards us. This is the care, the sympathy that he shows towards us. And because we can trust that our sins are really taken away by this great high priest and this great sacrifice, then despite our sin and despite our weaknesses, we can know that we have a God who loved us to the point of death and who sympathizes with us in our weakness and we can go to him. So very important portion of the text, very important argument. You can see, um, you know, how long did the author of Hebrews spend talking about Jesus being greater than the prophets? Yeah, three verses. The angels got about two chapters. Moses got seven verses or so, six, seven verses. Uh, and then the priest got like four or five. So you can tell just from looking at that, which one does the author of Hebrews care to emphasize the most? Yeah, the priest, right? Um, he's spending a lot more space and a lot more time on that. So uh, over the next two days, what we're going to do, let's see, today's Wednesday, so, so Thursday and Friday, right? Which I guess if you guys are having Iowa, I've got to figure out how to give you the test on Monday. You don't have Iowa. So one of these study halls, I may have to hand the test off to somebody because I, I actually, I don't know. I can't remember if testing is going on. In, anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, Thursday and Friday, what we're going to do is um, tomorrow we want to look at this faith chapter in Hebrews 11. We want to look a little bit before that in Hebrews 10 and see what kind of leads up to it. And then we want to finish up in chapters 12 and 13 on Friday. Um, so your reading this week was chapters 8 through 13, I think. 
So make sure that you've done that by the time you come to class tomorrow. And then um, you have a memory verse that will be due on Friday, which is, or no, sorry, it's due on the test on Monday. And it's the Hebrews uh, 4.15 that we just went over. So um, you got about five minutes before break. So just hang out in here.